This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Last week, I started with a premise point, and that was that there are things in our life that we can determine to set out to do that might not on paper look that big. But for whatever reason, the amount of spiritual resistance that exists to hinder us from doing the most basic steps forward in our spiritual life is shocking. And some of us end up, because of that resistance, actually giving up eventually on those pursuits. I would say it's, it's a very common thing, and I think it needs to be explained if this was a discipleship session, and I was going to, in a sense, take this message and turn it into a certain emphasis. This is a very unique message, and it's going to have a certain emphasis that's different than what I'm giving you now. At the same time, this dovetails. That is that the church would understand the value of perseverance, in the gaining of heavenly ground. That perseverance is a built-in factor that's included in the equation. It's because we say, my desire plus my energy given to it equals this. Two plus two equals four. However, it's sort of like two plus two, my willingness, my readiness, my givenness practically to it, plus persevering in it, equals this. You see, the guy down the road just needs two plus two, and it equals four for him. But for us as Christians, our goal isn't just what the guy down the street is after. We're interested in bringing the kingdom of heaven to this earth. So we get two plus two, and then we have to add some perseverance to get the four. It's a strange mathematical equation, but it's harder to gain spiritual ground than it is natural ground. And so some of you have set out on a course. Like last week, the theme was we're stuck. And so you feel stuck. And the amount of people in this church that feel stuck and they can't move was a very high percentage. In fact, shocking. And yet, as a church, I said as a conclusion last week that as a church, I would say that's a summation of where we're at. We're stuck. Many of you know that there's more that God intends for a church than what we know and experience here. And just as you know in your individual life, well, I say, let's persevere. Let's not just grumble and complain, let's persevere. So I have so many things in our life, in in my life, when I say our, I mean Leslie's and my marriage and our family, where we have set out, I'd say go back 22 and a half years to when we were first married, and we set out on a course. We had a very clear vision of what God intended to do in and through our married life, and I wouldn't say that none of it's come about, but I'd say that there's still things that haven't come about. That's 22 years of wrestling and prayer. You know that this campus and this ministry was 17 of those years that we prayed and wrestled for this. Now, three of those were before we even got married. 
In other words, this has been a vision. This, this was impossible. Everything about it. I can't tell you how many people in my life said, Eric, you might want to aim for something more realistic. There's a lot of people that want a campus, okay? There's just a lot of, I've run into a lot of people that they, they say, oh, I need to have a campus uh, to do this. I'm like, well, I do. Yeah, I know, I know. But you need to sort of aim a little more realistic. Well, you could aim more realistic in your life too. Just be completely given over to sin, live the normal, everyday, burping, scratching Christian life. Or you could aim for something the Bible promises. But to do that, you're going to have resistance. There is going to be a battlefront. And unless we as Christians understand that it's not just, oh, we're here and the gold is over there and we just walk across the room to get it. No, there's a whole legion of demons standing in between. That's where we get taken off guard. We weren't expecting the fight. We weren't expecting the friction that comes with going after a God purpose in our life. So just to give you an illustration, just this weekend, I did something with Hudson. It was a very significant uh, step forward of something that I've dreamed of for years, of doing ever since he was born. And it was about a year ago, almost exactly. No, 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 no. I shouldn't say it that way. It wasn't a year ago. It was about eight months ago. Uh, where I recognized it's time, and I was going to do this with Hudson. And did you hear the term eight months? It's like, why in the world did it take that long? Well, I don't know if you can give me an answer to that. It's not because I was twiddling my thumbs. This is like hard to move things forward that you have a vision for. It's amazing how sickness can hit, how distraction can hit. Bombs go off over here. It's like, okay, I need to tend to this. This building is falling over here. Hudson, I'll get back to you on that. Meanwhile, you're holding up a building over here. You see, it's amazing the amount of battle that is involved in normal steps forward for us as Christians. Some of you are shocked by it, and you feel like your life is something special. I just have more friction than the average person. No, you have more friction than the unbeliever. What you have is what a Christian gets. But unless you understand the battle and you understand how to grit your teeth and stand firm in that battle and understand the power of Jesus Christ, you're going to be done for. And you'll never reach those ends. However, perseverance, perseverance mixed with your willingness and your desire to move forward and then practical steps equals something very, very special in this life. So I have given certain messages over the years. In my mind, I guess you would call them uh, you ever heard the, those statements about something that was before its time? In other words, it was given, or it was like an artist, it's like a famous artist, but in his generation, he died of poverty, you know, and no one liked his art, and then when he died, everyone's like, oh, that's some great art. Uh, sometimes I feel that way. With some of the vision I have for the church, like my desire for the church is a lot bigger than most people are ready for. Okay, my desire for raising young kids is bigger than what most people are ready for. So if you remember the message, Raising William Wallace, that was just sort of one of those messages. Everyone's hair is like back and like, what was that? I go, yeah, that's a little peek inside the life and mind of Eric Ludi. However, what it demands to make it happen is more than me. And so as a result, it's just before it's time. However, you're going to notice that I will rehearse themes over and over again. They come back, and it might take a few years, but you're going to hear it again. 
And maybe we're not ready for it. In this message, I don't know that we're ready for it. However, you're going to get a little peek inside the heart and mind of Eric Ludi. There are, there's vision beyond where we're at. And I don't mind the fact that we aren't there. It's just I don't want us to settle here and think that we're full grown. And for instance, when I'm talking with Hudson, I want to give him a vision of a manly version of living that is beyond where he's living right now. Should I not give him that because he's not 22 yet? He's just 12. Should I only speak to him of what 12-year-olds could possibly do? Or should I give him a vision beyond so that he knows what he's growing into? And that's what I would say for us. I don't know if we're ready for this message, but this is like me sitting us down and saying, but God intends something so much bigger. There's going to be a lot of obstacles. There's going to be a lot of opposition. When we set out as a ministry to begin to reach the lost, remember the praying and confessing church? That entire thing that stirred through us. You know how much resistance this one church got saying, shut up. We don't want to hear from you. I mean, the lack of fruit that we had in that season. We had more fruit than before we all resolved to say, let's go out and win the nation. And suddenly we had no fruit. Isn't that just preposterous? And yet it shouldn't shock us. The amount of resistance, the key is perseverance. Don't you think we're going to get fruit if we keep pressing? The thing is, many of us stopped. We stopped sharing. We stopped pressing the issue as opposed to recognizing that comes with the territory. And I think that's where God's wanting to press me at a whole nother level. I have pressed things, pressed things, pressed things, and some things that you get so tired. And you're just like, oh, I just don't know if it's ever going to happen. And that's right probably moments before the breakthrough. And so I want us to keep pressing. The lightning war. I don't know if you, there's a theme to all the different things I've been going through. Remember the Civil War? I had like three messages on the Civil War. I don't know what the deal is with me and war. Now I have the lightning war. Uh, this weekend, Hudson and I watched uh, Sergeant York. Oh, what a great movie. And so I'm all into war. That was before I even, I mean, that was after I wrote the message too. So something about war and Eric Ludi. I'm not even that, I don't like war at all. But I'm intrigued by the fact I, I don't want to pick up a gun and hurt someone with it. I I actually have no interest in that. But I understand that this is a very real spiritual battle that we're in. And if I don't wield the weaponry that I have against the spiritual powers of darkness, they're going to overcome us. We have been bequeathed and given something at the cross so that we can devastate the powers of darkness in this generation. So the lightning war, a study in heavenly strategy. So I broke this up like I do a book. In fact, most of you don't realize that every time I put together a sermon, it's the way I put together a book. I just don't put introduction, chapter, titles, and things like that. And so in this one, for whatever reason, I don't know, I was in a funny mood, I decided to break it up the way my mind works so you guys can take a little peek inside the mind of Eric at a whole other level. Introduction. Understanding the resistance. Well, we just sort of went through that. So we've sort of covered our introduction. There is resistance And for us, we need to expect it. Listen to what Peter says. Beloved, church at Ellerslie, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Don't, Don't consider it strange. This isn't unusual that we as Christians face difficulty and trials in moving our lives forward. It just sort of goes with the territory. 
Chapter 1, defining lightning with a heavenly dictionary. You see, what's unfortunate about this uh, right from the very beginning is you know that there is something called the lightning war. In German, it's called the Blitzkrieg. I'm not very good with my German. Uh, if Dwight was able to say it, he'd say it a lot more Germany. Uh, but it's a Blitzkrieg. It's actually a lightning war. But Hitler stole it. He stole it straight from the Bible. A lightning war is God's idea. And that's why it's, it's hard. From the very beginning, it's like, don't think of Hitler in this. You know, that, that's a counterfeit version of something. There is something known as a lightning war that God invented. And that's what I want to go into. So let's define lightning with a heavenly dictionary. So lightning, by definition, is a flash of light in the sky caused by an electrical discharge between clouds or between a cloud and the Earth's surface. The flash heats the air and usually causes thunder. Lightning may appear as a jagged streak, as a bright sheet, or in rare cases, as a glowing red ball. Wow, I don't know if I've... Have any of you ever seen the glowing red ball version of lightning? That's intriguing. Uh, so I think most of us see the jagged streak. Every now and then, you know how the sky will just go... <laughs> with a, like the, the, the bright sheet version, the whole sky will just light up. You don't see a, a streak. But the glowing red ball, I'm not exactly sure what, what that would look like. <laughs> uh, but... Lightning, this is what we know. We understand, but it's fascinating to think that it's, uh, it's an interaction, electrical interaction between the heavenly realms and the earthen realm. Isn't that just sort of a fascinating thought just in and of itself? It's from the clouds to the earth. You know, it can be cloud to cloud. There's that, that going on too. But then there's something about this connection between cloud and earth that creates this lightning. Lightning is a biblical term. Isn't that just a weird thought. I mean, it shouldn't be that weird, but God uses the illustration of lightning. Now, there's a second definition, the adjective version of lightning, which means very, very quick. So when we use the word lightning to describe something as an adjective, it means that it is moving very, very quick. And do you know that God uses even that as a description in Scripture? So I know I'm not going back to our previous presidency uh, with this Hebrew word, but it sort of sounds familiar, isn't it? Barak. That's actually the word uh, in the Hebrew for the word lightning. It actually means a glittering sword. It is a weapon by by its very nature. It is a sword that literally is moving so fast. And so it is lightning. God and lightning. It's weird to connect the two, but... God is involved with this idea of lightning. Number one, I'm going to give you four things that uh, the Bible uses to describe lightning or how the Bible describes lightning. God utterly destroys his enemies with lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice and he sent out arrows and scattered them. Lightning and he discomfited them, which means, means completely demolished and disintegrated them. Number two, it's the key metaphor for the defeat of Satan. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So how did Satan fall? As lightning. So God judges uh, with lightning, strangely. It is the chief characteristic of the movement of the throne carriers. This is a fascinating one. You have to, if you've gone through Ellerslie training, this is going to ring a bell. But when we teach a, a message called the chariot of the cherubim, and we read through the first three chapters of Ezekiel, uh, it's, it's quite fun. Uh, there is an illustration of a mobile holy of holies. It is quite strange, and you feel like it's a visit to Narnia. Because the creatures, there are four living creatures that we later find out are called cherubim that actually carry 
the throne of grace. And so there's like a crystal sea above them. And on that crystal sea is a throne. And on that throne sits the Almighty himself. And the description of the Almighty in that is the same as in Revelation. It's God on his throne. It's an amazing picture. But they're carried, and there's these wheels that have eyes on them. It's just weird stuff, right? But the cherubim are the ones that carry this. And the cherubim, it says they move like lightning. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now what's interesting is this picture in the Old Testament is a picture of something for us in the New Testament. God chose the brightest, the best, the most beautiful, the most powerful, the cherubim. They had four faces. Satan, I mean Lucifer, was a cherub, or is a cherub, just a bad one. In other words, these are the most powerful of all creatures, the most beautiful of all creatures, the most wise of all creatures. And yet, they humbled themselves to carry God's throne. So God has gone from being carried by cherubim to being carried by us. We are the throne carriers. And what do we know about the throne carriers? Well, they move like lightning. So just a little point uh, of reference here. Now, I know we're not cherubim, but I still like to think that uh, we might be able to move like cherubim. Number four, it's the key description for the face of Jesus. His body also was like beryl, and his face is the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polish brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And then in Matthew 28, his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. Because remember what Barak means? It means a glittering sword. So remember what comes out of Jesus' mouth in, in Revelation 19? It says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, goes lightning. If you want to say it that way, that's exactly what's coming out. So remember, his face is his lightning. So the sharp sword comes out of his mouth so that with it he should strike the nations. Remember, lightning is how he judges. That's how, Na- that's how Satan fell. He judged the nations and discomfited him with lightning. Lightning. I like it. It's, a, it's one of those words that you just feel good about. It's a war maneuver. It's a metaphor for judgment on the bad guys. It's the swift movement of the Christian. It's the glory of God. So there's something about lightning that we're prepared for in the Bible to understand. I mean, even though it's somewhat obscure, I have to admit. But these things are facts. It's a war maneuver. God uses lightning to destroy his enemies. It's a metaphor for judgment on the bad guys. Yeah, that's how Satan fell. He fell as lightning. It's the swift movement of the Christian. Yeah, those guys that carry the throne, they move like lightning. And it's the glory of God. Yep, it's his face. That's what he looks like. Lightning. Whoa. The lightning war. When the face of Christ is once again seen on the face of the church. So if Jesus' face is his lightning and we're his body, what does our face look like? I know, it sounds really strange. Lightning? Uh. Ellerslie. So I'm going to give you a little background on Ellerslie. Uh, Now, this seems to be a derailment or a detour here, but I'm getting somewhere. Uh, The home of the dunce. So if you've ever heard of a dunce, that's not necessarily a compliment, right? We take it as one here. Uh, There was a character named John Dunce uh, way back in the Middle Ages. We're talking uh, 800 years ago uh, that was quite an amazing man. 
he was actually considered the smartest man in his entire generation and by many to be the smartest man in the entire Middle Ages. So as a result, you have to think one of the smartest men in all history. And guess where the term dunce comes from? That guy. Isn't that just strange? And he grew up just about 20 miles, he was born about 20 miles away from Ellerslie, which was the birthplace of William Wallace, which is what we're named after. So we're named after Ellerslie, and he was born I mean, like four years removed and 20 miles down the street, or 20 minutes down the street from Ellerslie. So we're like akin to this guy. You know what made him so special is he had a belief that all things pertained to the creator of the universe, given a proper name, would be Jesus Christ. John Dunce was a big fan of Jesus Christ, and he wore a pointy hat to make it clear. He said, like a pointed finger upwards towards the heavens to say, it's all about him. And he says, that's where all true knowledge and intellect comes from. If you want to know the world in which you live, you need to know the creator of it, and his name is Jesus Christ. By the way, I know him personally. And so we decided, somewhere along the line as Ellerslie, that it would be reasonable for us to be a home of dunces too. You know, people that, whether we wear pointy hats or not, we still have a decided finger that aims upwards and says, look, guys, I've determined to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. I've determined that everything that truly matters is centered upon Jesus. And so, you know, that's a pretty reasonable thing. So there's something else, and this goes to our connections with uh, William Wallace. William Wallace is famous in history for multiple things that you, you guys, because of the movies that have come out. Uh, however, there's something that is a little more obscure that some of you have heard me teach on before and in the past, but it's the Hobbelar. And the Hobbelar is something that I don't mind being associated with either. So if we're going to be uh, associated with anything, I'd say let's be the home of the dunces and the home of the hobbler. Now, of course, that doesn't sound very impressive at first, but let me impress you as we go forward. Chapter 2, Introducing the hobbler. The Awkwardness of the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army, and this is, I'm going to, I'm building a case, it's like an intro to my, my chapter, okay? So, the Salvation Army, today isn't quite what it used to be in yesteryear. The Salvation Army of yesteryear is actually one of the most moving and powerful illustrations of the body of Christ moving in action on planet Earth that I've ever seen. In fact, if you asked me, so Eric, you say it's one of them. Can you pick one that's greater? No. I would say that the Salvation Army is possibly, for me, the greatest picture of the body of Christ, not an individual man or an individual man and his, and his wife and what they did, but an individual man and a wife leading an organization to change the earth in which they live as a mobile, moving, living, breathing body. The Salvation Army was extraordinary. Nowadays, I think we associate it more with humanitarian aid, you know, ringing bells, and we, we give a little money to it, and they do good things, okay? So we're not against it, but to think of it changing the world in which we live, eh, I don't know about that, and I would say the same. It's not what it used to be, okay? And I, that's, that oftentimes happens. The leaders of an organization die, and their original visions can sometimes die with it. There's still some great people in the Salvation Army, but long and short, it just seems rather weird. Okay, to most of us in here, if you were to give me an assessment of the Salvation Army, it's like, yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of needy people, 
and they're doing some good things. You know, but you don't have a lot of like, wow, that is amazing. So something's happened over the years, but let's go back in time. It's interesting, but the Salvation Army was always sort of awkward and strange. It is sort of awkward today without power. It used to be awkward with power. And they didn't seem to mind. They were a whole bunch of dunces. And they seemed to choose a pointy hat. It wasn't really a pointy hat, but they chose to look foolish to a world, and they changed the world as a result. So I'll go into that as we progress, but I'm going to build and I'm going to use the Salvation Army as a picture because they did something right. So one of the things you'd hear in sort of our backroom conversations at Ellerslie is we'll say, let's bring it back, guys. However, bringing back the strength of the Salvation Army isn't easily done because, first of all, it's a God work. That's one thing I can't create, right? And secondly, it was a different time period. You're going to recognize what made the Salvation Army strong in their day would not work today. And as a result, we can't just say, oh, let's do what they did. Because a lot of people do that. A lot of Christians like read an old book and go, I'm going to do that. However, that's the very problem, is what they did was directly designed strategically to match the needs of the culture in which they were engaged. If we do the same thing the Salvation Army did back then, it wouldn't come across right. You see, they were strategic as a war machine, and in the midst of a lightning war, they fought well. However, we need, what we learn from them isn't to do exactly what they did, but to take the principles and the truth of what they did and learn how to apply it strategically today. We really are at war, and currently we are not built for battle. I'm just making some statements of fact here. So when you get new recruits, you bring them into uh, boot camp, one of the first things you begin to realize if you're one of the presiding officers is we got some... We got some raw stuff here, guys. We're going to need to whip this into shape. And in the church, since we don't have boot camp in the church, it's different. In other words, I can't just whip you into shape. Because I could say, guys, we need to have prayer in this church. But I can't force you to pray. You know, if I'm a, a, a drill instructor, I could force you to do 100 push-ups, right? I, I mean, I could. This would be an interesting strategy if we took that and applied it to church. Uh, however, church is a little different, especially modern American church, because our sensitivities on these points is, hey, you can speak to me, you can loft some ideas out there, but I'm going to choose to you know, pick and choose what I like out of it. And as a result, we have a very difficult time moving forward as a military operation, because one of the key things in a military operation is knowing how to keep rank and knowing how to form battle formation. It was interesting. I almost added to this message. I did a whole study on David's army and how he numbered them. And it sounds really boring, I know. But going through each of the tribes, of the 12 tribes, and numbering who showed up. However, there was a certain group that was numbered. And those that were ready for war, which means they were fit for war, which could mean two things. They were in shape for war, but secondly, that they had the military equipment for war, spear and uh, shield. And if they didn't, well, then they weren't fit for war. So that was one. And the other one is that they kept ranks and that they knew battle formation. They kept battle formation. Over and over and over again, it says that. These had battle formation. As a result, they were counted amongst David's army. If they didn't have that, hey, we're not counting them. That's not part of our army. They're not fit for war. 
Okay, so for us, I would say we have some huge gaping holes. So I have a vision for us as a church to function as one body, to do the same thing, so that when we go out, we're not just scattered all over the place. Could you imagine, you know, the north against the south, the union, Gettysburg, you know, everyone shows up at at Gettysburg from the union, and they're just like, you know what, what do I feel like doing today? You lose the battle that way. But if they all are united and saying, what are we supposed to do? You tell me where to be and what to do. Then suddenly there's formation and we can accomplish something together. How that happens in a modern day American church, I'm at a loss for words. I'm not exactly sure. So all I know is that we really are at war. There was a a writer, a very well-known writer, that came out and said, I am sick and tired of the war metaphor being used in Christianity. That's the facial expression he probably had, too. (laughs) And, you know, hey, buddy, you know, I'm sorry that you're offended by the war metaphor, but it's not a metaphor. It's fact. There's a difference, because a metaphor likens something. It's It's sort of like war. No, no, this is war. You may not like it, but it is. It is war that we're engaged in. God makes it very clear. He's not just using a metaphor when he talks about it. He says, you are engaged in a battle. For if thou altogether holds thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knows whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is Esther. And so what we see is that Esther is positioned very uniquely at a certain time with a certain opportunity to influence and it says, for if thou altogether holds thy peace at this time, then, there, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Will God get his work done on this earth even if we sit on our thumbs? Yes, he will. But God, don't pass us over. I want you to use us. I want you to find this church ready. For how do we know that we have not been positioned in history for such a time as this? That we are here today gathered, ready, with the knowledge we have at the maturity level that we're at to say, yes, Lord, use us. For such a time as this, that for such a time as this principle, you see, you could say in every generation, there are those that are prepared even when they don't know they're being prepared. There are those, you're learning skills and you have these odd, eccentric qualities to you that at the moment you might be made fun of for. Instead of recognizing that God is positioning and fitting a body for such a time as this. Esther, I mean, what, what did she do other than look pretty? However, she had a boldness and a courage that God had somehow worked into her and a readiness to seek the glory of Jehovah higher than her own comfort. So there was something that took place in that girl that readied her for that exact moment in history. God always has a means of salvation. That's a fact. God will get his work done in this world. However, he has chosen to use the vehicles of humanity. He has chosen to use his church And if we fall down on the job, if we neglect our duties, he will raise up a church somewhere else. He's looking for a church. That's what he's after. Not just an individual body, the church. He always has a ram 
caught in the thicket, a shepherd boy delivering bread and cheese at just the right time, a queen positioned just in the perfect spot at just the right moment in history, or a Messiah giving himself over into the hands of sinners in the fullness of time. God is salvation. That is his work. He saves, and he is ready to work a marvelous salvation in our day. So a habalar. See, this is just, I'm prepping you now to understand a habalar. I'm laying some groundwork in my chapter so that you're like, hmm, what's this habalar thing? It's sort of a weird word. It's not a very poetic word. Like you don't really want, if any of you are poets, you're not thinking of using habalar in your sentence, you know, in your, in your, uh, in your verse. So what is a habalar? Listen to this. This is my mysterious definition. It's a heaven-bred answer to the needs of God's people in any given generation. Every generation, the Jews in the time when Haman was after their destruction and he got King Artaxerxes to sign that, uh, that uh, legal document which declared that all of Jews would be destroyed. You see, at such a time, there was a need of a habalar. There was a need of a heaven-bred answer to the needs of God's people in any given generation. In that generation, they needed one. Often built and designed by God's decades, if not centuries, if not millennia, if not eons prior to the time in history when the Habilar itself is actually revealed and made fully ready. The Habilar is an instrument of war designed by God to wholly shock the enemy and swiftly overcome them. So the way God prepares for war, it isn't just like, okay, guys, I see that we have an enemy out there. All right, uh, could we get in shape right now? God actually prepares a hobbler long before we, the church, arrive at that point of desperation. And he does it not just a few weeks in advance, not just a few months, not just a few years. Sometimes it might be decades, sometimes centuries, certain things before the foundations of the earth. In other words, God is ahead of the curve when it comes to battle. God knows what he's doing. The four attributes of a hobbler. So I still haven't explained to you what a hobbler is. You just are getting sort of the vibe of it. It's audacious. That's one thing about a hobbler. It is audacious. It is surprising. No one expects it. It is lightning fast. Mm-hmm. And it is small and unassuming, but delivers a gigantic blow. In other words, the enemy usually mocks a hobbler. It's like, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? Sound familiar? In other words, a hobbler, when it shows up, is unexpected. You see, the devil has his guard up. And he knows what to stand against. In every generation, he's figured it out. He's studying it. He's knowing what he can do to destroy that generation. A hobbler comes in and goes straight through the cracks in his armor. See, a hobbler is a God idea. The birth of a hobbler in Scotland. Huh. You see, Scott, Ellerslie, some of us don't appreciate our heritage here. We have a, a ministry name. Even our church, the church at Ellerslie, that's the birthplace of William Wallace. Okay, now for some of you, like, yeah, yeah, so? Yeah, but. Just wait till you hear this, and you'd be like, oh, that's amazing. The birth of a hobbler in Scotland. So 1270, Ellerslie, Scotland. Don't you just feel at home? Ellerslie, Scotland. Here we are. 1270. What's weird is uh, I was born 1217, 1970. So I just feel 
extra bonded uh, to, to William Wallace and Ellerslie Scotland. None of that was purposeful. It just, I just feel a kinship. Sort of like Eric Little when I watch Chariots of Fire. His name's Eric Little. My name's Eric Ludi. And so when he kicks his head back and he's running like a wild man at the end, I'm crying. I'm like, that's me. So in 1270, Ellerslie, Scotland, a little baby boy is born. Whoa. His parents christen him William. He is trained to know right from wrong, to esteem honor, integrity, character, manhood, holiness, heroism, boldness, and the work of the cross and the authority of Scripture. He is raised to endure hardship, built physically to wield a sword, and trained academically to understand government, society, and war. But for such a time as this moment arises... This man, in the fullness of his maturity, the greatest strength point of his physical body, there is a crisis that occurs in his homeland. 1296, so 26 years later, the Ellerslie Estate, Scotland. Edward I, with his bloated numbers of strong and well-bred soldiers, invades Scotland, fully expecting to stamp out the small Scottish rebellion. The multitude of well-trained English soldiers, soldiers march into Scotland, an unstoppable force against a bunch of hungry, ragtag Scots. And that is when William strides out of the gates of Ellerslie with the hobbler in his possession, which the Scots so desperately need. You see, what is happening behind the scenes that you don't know and wouldn't be captured in a book necessarily, like the Scottish Chiefs is a book written in 1810 that greatly impacted my life. And that's where the movie Braveheart was... In a sense, it flowed out of. The, the book is better uh, than, the, than the movie. But with this, what you don't see is that this man was being groomed for something. He didn't know it. He just wanted peace. Technically, he didn't want to have to even fight. Probably like all of us. We don't want war. We don't want to have to engage in a war. Is there a way that I can just live my life at peace? Every single one of us craves that. We don't want to be in the midst of a battle. And yet... There is a battle, and William Wallace could deny the battle, or he could rise up. You see, this man was uniquely positioned in history with knowledge of something. Hobbelars of history. So I'll get back to the hobbelar of William Wallace. You still, I still haven't told you what it is. Isn't this fun, going through a, this book style? See, I like to keep things in books, make them mysteries. Some of you already know, so it's not as fun for you. But uh, for those of you that don't know, this is great. Hobbelars of history. Gideon. Think about each of these. Remember how I said the Blitzkrieg was not invented by Hitler. This is God's idea. Gideon. Think about it. Audacious? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's at least 185,000 that are coming against Israel. God chooses this guy. Not that impressive. Gideon? Well, why would you pick him? And then out of all the army, 30,000 show up. And then God says, too many. Let's trim this down. By the time God's done trimming it down, it's down to 300. Audacious? Oh, yeah. Surprising? Well, just ask the Midianites. Lightning fast? Yep. As quick as they started, the Midianites killed themselves. I mean, it was the most bizarre Battle, small and unassuming, but delivering a gigantic blow. Mm -hmm, that fits. David, audacious. Oh, uh, yeah. An entire army of groomed soldiers known as the Israelites, with Saul, by the way, who was head and shoulders above all Israel. He was a giant of a man. 
are all trembling with fear before this beast known as Goliath. And this little shepherd boy shows up. Hey, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? Well, uh, he's just, he's big, is what he is. Audacious, David takes him on with a sling and five stones. Whoa, surprising? Uh Uh-huh, I don't think Goliath was ready for this one. Goliath is ready to fight with shield and sword. What does David come at him with? A rock? You see, he wasn't built to defend against a rock. And there was a nice soft spot right there waiting to be struck. Lightning fast. It says that David moved. Mahar means to move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey, is the actual description. Small and unassuming, but delivering a gigantic blow. Esther, audacious. Uh, Yeah, you know you're not supposed to do that. No, no. Hey, Esther, where are you going? I'm going in to stand before the king. That's illegal. I mean, he'll kill you if you do that. I have no other choice. Surprising? Yep. Lightning fast? Well, ask Haman. He wasn't expecting it. Suddenly, the gallows that he built for Mordecai, he's hanging on. Small and unassuming, but delivering a gigantic blow. Jesus, the cross. The cross was a lightning war. The cross was a blitzkrieg against the enemy. Audacious? Oh, yeah. Allow all the power of heaven to be stripped from you. Become naked, humble, as a carpenter, as a sheep unto slaughter. This man gave up all of heaven to come down and become weak, a worm and no man, and attach himself and fix himself to a cross. Surprising? Lightning fast? Oh, you better believe it. You see, the devil built the gallows for him. And on that very gallows, he ended up hanging. The devil was the one destroyed. God had him right where he wanted him. You see, God won the lightning war. It happened so quick, the devil had no idea what hit him. Small and unassuming, but delivering a gigantic blow. That's an understatement. The apostles. It's funny because Paul's name itself actually means diminutive or small. So he's a small little Jewish guy, bald head and big Jewish nose. Uh, That guy doesn't look very impressive. He even says that. Hey, guys, I know you don't think I look very impressive. Audacious, surprising, lightning fast. The world is turned on its head by this little band of ragtag disciples turned apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Small and unassuming, but delivering a gigantic blow. It's a hobbler. Scotland in 1296, ransacked, plundered, starving, weak, and very vulnerable. Modern church, 2017. Ransacked, plundered, starving, weak, and very vulnerable. Yep. We're about the same. And it's high time we found a hobbler. You see, we are in a weakened state. We're not in a strong state. I know it may appear that we are strong because we have so many churches. Actually, the overall attendance in churches and those that consider themselves Christians in this country has been shrinking every single year. You know that's unprecedented? Christianity doesn't shrink. Uh, What do we do if we're healthy Christians? We bear fruit. We multiply. That's the way it's always been. 
So if our country is shrinking, don't tell me the church is healthy. If we are losing a Christian witness in this country, something is wrong. So I'll call a spade a spade. That's a fact. And it also needs to be a fact here, lingering in our midst to say, is something wrong here? We don't want to go fruitless. We don't want to just have minds filled with truth, but not lives actively engaged in living it. So when England and Edward I invaded Scotland in 1296, it revealed to the armies of Scotland that their historic feudal-styled military tactics, which had always proven effective, were no longer able to sustain them and must be adapted to meet the current challenge. So, you know, the feudal style, it's like all the, the military get into lines and they just march, stay in order, stay in position, and halt! And they, think of Lord of the Rings and you're probably pretty close. Okay, it's feudal-styled warfare. Up to this point, guerrilla-styled warfare had not yet been invented. You know when that was invented? 1296, Scotland. Because Scotland could not stand against the mass army of Edward. Well-trained soldiers, well-armed. They had everything. They were fit for battle. And the Scottish were weak. A radical review and revision of their military approach then ensued. William Wallace and Robert the Bruce both engaged the English in a form of quasi-guerrilla warfare, with their chief strategy being, whenever possible, to pick the side of the battle and to make the ground fight for them. This tactic worked, eliminating the advantage of the English size and strength and playing England's slow-moving, feudal-styled girth against them by hitting them with the hobbler. <gasps> Did you see that? This allowed the Scots to win battles against vastly superior size and strength simply by wielding the tactic of speed and surprise. So what in the world is the hobbler? What did they do? What did William Wallace invent? What William Wallace brought to this battle was a hobbler. So since we are Ellerslie, I say we are primed to bring a hobbler to our generation. The advent of the hobbler. The hobbler was used by the Scots as a means of gaining the element of speed and surprise, essential for success, thus allowing them to engage the enemy at times and places of their choosing. Some of you are getting frustrated with my message. Like, you still haven't told us what the hobbler is. You notice that? I told you that Gideon was a hobbler. I told you that David was a hobbler. I told you that Esther was a hobbler. I told you that Jesus was a hobbler. You see, you're getting the idea what a hobbler is. I don't want you to get caught up in the exact hobbler that... William Wallace used, I'm prepping you to recognize that God always has a hobbler. You notice that? That's my emphasis, even though it is pretty fun to look at William Wallace's hobbler. Meanwhile, in Ireland. So in Ireland, something has been taking place for quite a few generations. The Irish are breeding a horse. And this horse is a horse that has never before been built or bred, if you want to say it that way. The Irish are breeding a special horse, a horse that can prove dexterous on the steep mountain face as well as moving like lightning through the open meadows. A horse that is soon to be discovered in Scotland right around the year 1296. Who's a horse? The hobbler is a horse. Did you know that? The hobbler, known to many of us as the hobby horse. The hobby horse 
It was dexterous on the steep mountain face as well as it moved like lightning through the open meadows. And guess who discovered it? William Wallace. William Wallace started bringing over hobbelars, hobby horses from Ireland. And this was the secret that actually changed the entire face of the war. So what exactly is the hobbelar? It's a form of military attack utilizing special bred war horses, horses that are smaller but lightning fast. These horses were built to move over the most difficult terrain with the dexterity of a mountain goat, but with the swiftness of the raging rapids. The proper use of the hobbler could cause a far larger military operation to falter and fail due to the fact that it couldn't respond quick enough to the lightning-quick movements of the soldiers riding on the hobbler. So everyone in England is, is marching. <laughs> and what did Wallace do? He stuck his warriors on a hobbler and sent them in through the side at lightning speed, hacking away. And guess who was not ready to defend against that? They're supposed to stay in position. They have no answer to getting knocked over from the side. And as a result, they would divide the army straight through, just like a, a blade cutting through the middle of the army. One soldier could decimate hundreds this way because the enemy, get this, key point, had no defense against it. The enemy's defenses were not up for the hobbler. The enemy had defenses up against what? Feudal-style warfare. You see, the enemy knows how you are going to try and bring Christianity to this generation. He knows it. He's seen it before. He knows what you're going to try and do. So what's he doing? He's duping the masses. You know the entire Humanist Manifesto 2? The whole entire point of it is to persuade the culture in such a way, to dupe the culture, that they cannot receive the ideas of Christianity anymore. That they will sound foolish when they come to them. It's been effectively done to the point that when you bring the gospel, people laugh before they even hear it. Oh, you're one of those. You see, there's a defense up against it. But God may have a hobbler. The hobbin, from the Gaelic, oban, meaning swift, sudden, speedy, instant, lightning quick. That's where the term hobbler comes from, lightning quick. The time for radical review. So all of that said, remember how I said in the very beginning, I don't know that we're ready for this as much as I want to set it out before us because many of you in this church remember when I brought this up before. And I laid out practicals even for our church and here's what I would say. I even knew it the day I did it. We're not ready for this. I felt it. We're not ready for this. This is premature. Or is it just me speaking to a 12-year-old saying, you know what, let's get on to this. You see, we have to do something in this generation. We cannot sit on our thumbs. However, what we do doesn't need to be defined. I think the readiness, if you know you're headed to battle, what do you do? You submit to boot camp. Train me how to handle that gun. Train me, get me in shape. I do not want to get over there and just die. If you knew you were going to be thrown out of a B-52 into actual enemy territory, and someone just threw you a parachute and a gun and said, figure it out for yourself, what would you want to know? Could you uh, show me how to use this stuff? Because you know you're going to be pushed out. That door is going to open and you're going into enemy territory. What do you want to know? I want to know how to use this and I want to know how to get out alive. I want to know how to get the job done down there and then get out. Could someone teach me what to do? We'd love to. You see, Christianity is meant to have that intrinsically baked in. You are in a battle 
to survive and to know the enemy, to defeat the enemy and to win this battle, you need to be trained. So we submit to the training, we submit to the battle formation, we submit to the military order so that we can together accomplish something that by ourselves we could not. The time for radical review. When England and Edward I invaded Scotland in 1296, it revealed to the armies of Scotland that their historic military tactics that had always proved effective were no longer able to sustain them and must be adapted to meet the current challenge. A radical review and revision of their military approach then ensued. I would say we need to be willing as the church to do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to this generation. And if we need a radical review to our approach, brought, so be it. You know that Richard Wormbrandt to have regular church services with the body of Christ when it became illegal in Romania to do it? You know what they did? They started celebrating birthdays every uh, weekend in the forest. And because you could do that. You could gather for birthday parties. So what did they do? They gathered for birthday parties and just happened to sing some worship songs and preach the word of God at the same time. <laughs> birthdays everywhere. Oh, what an uncanny possibility this is that there's someone in the church every week that has a birthday. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to bring the gospel to bear upon a nation, even when that nation begins to close off to it. And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who you'd know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore stood they before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding, the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better. We have the mind of Christ. And so as a result, in a culture... To know how to address a culture, it shouldn't take these think tanks out there. Men that have no fear of God with brilliant IQs to get together and say, okay, how could we change this culture for the conservative agenda? We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. If we submit ourselves to God, I believe he will give us a Havilah. And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. In David's count of who was included out of Issachar, it actually says this. They were men who understood the times in which they lived. And as a result, they knew what Israel ought to do. I believe that we have sons of Issachar in this room, just as David had in his camp. And so as a result, if we needed to figure out what to do, who would we call into the room? Let's get the sons of Issachar in here. Who are the sons of Issachar in this room, the battle strategists? Who are they? You see, the body of Christ is built very purposely. And you may have an uncanny ability that never has been tapped into by the Holy Spirit. He's like, I don't know why I have this, but I always have, had had this. And as a result, for such a time as this, you may be being ready to actually help the church of Jesus Christ navigate its way through a very difficult time. The Salvation Army in 1880. God showed them their hubbalar. It was the use of brass bands, the wielding of the language and insignia of an army, the leasing of secular theaters in which to hold their meetings, the employment of secular music overlaid with Christian lyrics, the near instant sending off of the new recruits into active ministry labor, and the use of women in their leadership. Every single thing I just named was completely unprecedented and unknown at the time. In fact, even some of us in this room are extremely offended by what they chose to do. I mean, you can't do that. That's, that's a compromise. There was no compromise for them, though. The level of purity that this, this ministry walked in was amazing. It truly was. And yet, I'm just reading that list, and I'm uncomfortable with it. 
And yet, in a couple years, they'd led 200,000 people to Christ. I mean, people that literally radically then entered the army and went to work to serve Jesus Christ. All right, maybe we need a radical review of our way of doing things because we're not doing that. We've been here for eh, closing on eight years. And I don't know that we want to stack our numbers of new recruits against the Salvation Armies. We're missing something. We're missing something. We could very easily call it power. But it's also a means to wield that power through to gain a nation for Jesus Christ. I'd be happy with gaining a neighborhood. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, could you imagine how shocking it would be if an entire neighborhood came to Jesus? It's like, yeah, the whole neighborhood just like went to Jesus. What about a, a, a town called Windsor? It's like the whole town. And people don't even know what to do with it. Like the whole town is like on the streets during the night singing. They're just like something's happened there. That's just one town. I mean, let's let something spread. I, all I know is it needs to start here, here. If it's not happening here, then I can't expect it to happen there either. This military maneuver of the Salvation Army wholly surprised the enemy who was totally unprepared for this movement of grace. With speed, audacity, suddenness, and boldness, the hobbler of 1880 charged into the fray, devastating the powers of darkness the world over. Every culture has its access points. So if you remember this, uh, me talking about the hobbler before, I, I gave a, a quick introduction. There's certain things that, the, that the, our culture is predisposed to be intrigued with. And as a result, we can leverage them. So I was just giving an illustration of that, the flash mob. People love to think that they were involved in a flash mob. It's like, oh yeah, I was, there was a flash mob today at the mall. However, could you imagine if you were a flash mob of a whole bunch of Christians and what you were doing was a flash mob of something that was going to implant Jesus in them? However, if you just get, come up to them and say, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, they may say, no, thank you. But if you have a flash mob around them, they're like, oh, this is cool. In other words, it's a hobbler. Their defenses aren't up against it. The innovative, people love innovative, just sort of like, Back in the, the days of the Greeks, they loved unusual. Well, understand what our culture falls for and be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. The improv. Imagine an acting crew down here and they're just doing improv, but everything is leading back to the gospel. People love that. Well, they don't love the gospel, but they love the improv. You can sneak a whole bunch of stuff in. Caroling. I just think that is one of the funniest things that our culture will allow you to come to their door and sing songs about Jesus once a year. And invite everyone from the family. Hey, come, come and listen to this. Well, why don't we leverage that? Why don't we leverage it where we're actually strategically planting the gospel instead of accidentally having them hear the word Jesus every now and then, actually purposely leverage the fact that we know they're going to open the door. And we know they're going to invite their whole family. Let's get the gospel in through this door. Trick or treat. It's strange, but there's another day of the year, which is not the one that we're fondest of that actually people allow you to come to their door and interact with them. So in other words, on most days, they'll just slam it shut. However, what if we as Christians were just more strategic with the openings that are already there, the, 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 the little gaps in the armor? The Telmarine culture, leveraging the culture against itself. Back in, uh, do you remember, it's uh, Narnia, uh, Prince Caspian. The uh, Telmarines are surrounding the Narnians. It's not looking good. It's a pretty dark day. And they need to buy time so that they can go out and seek Aslan. And so one of the ideas is, well, let's use the Telmarine culture against them. Challenge the king to hand-to-hand -hand duel. He has to say yes. 
It's part of the dignity of the culture. They can't but say yes. Use the Telmarine culture against itself to get time for Aslan to show up. I like it. The Christ Army of 2017, what is our Havilar? I don't have an answer for that. I have an answer in my own life because I have to live this as an individual man, as an individual married man to my wife and to my children. I want my family to be an instrument for the gospel whether or not this church ever does anything. Does that make sense? I do not make my response to Jesus hinge on anyone in this room. I want my family to rise up and be strong for Jesus even if all of you booed me. I don't think you will. However, the point being, all of us as individuals need to make a decision. Then we come together with like-mindedness to say, let's do this thing. If there is an option, don't hit where the defenses are up. So Abby's been trying to make her way into one of my sermons uh, for a while. So uh, this is the tickling Abby strategy. Abby loves to be tickled. It's a strange thing. I don't know why any kid would like to be tickled. I, I don't like to be tickled. I like to tickle, but I don't like to be tickled. <laughs> and so Abby, here's, here's how it works. <clears throat> if you poke her in the belly, you know what she'll do? her hand will come down there to defend the belly. So then what you do is you can go where her hand is not, down to her knee area right there, and, go, and then she's like, ah! And then she goes like this, which then opens up the side. You see, if you try and tickle her where her defenses are up, it's not effective tickling, right? So in a sense, what we want to do with the devil, the devil is, is doing this little thing. So if he reaches to defend his knee, get him in the belly. Okay, if he, if he raises his arm, if ever he raises his arm, go right under the, in the armpit area and go, <laughs> that's part of the strategy. Don't go where the defenses are up. There's all sorts of defenses right now in our culture. You don't have to hit straight at the defense. I mean, it sounds noble to do it, and we can break down that defense. I'm not saying we can't. I'm just saying there's military strategy that we can't employ. The enemy is vulnerable right now. The powers of darkness have grown bloated and proud. They're used to winning and they have grown accustomed to victory. But that confidence is their greatest weakness. God's been breeding a special war horse for such a time as this. And the enemy has a big army, but it's a slow army, ill-equipped to handle the onrush of a new military instrument. What is the hobbler of our day? So this is my joking response, a flash mob of opera singing preachers. I mean, it'd be powerful. Uh, <laughs> It would be so odd that people would have to listen. Could you imagine? They're like, what is that? I, I think it's a flash mob, honey. Yeah, but they're like singing opera. Uh, I, I realize that, but we're in a flash mob. I mean, this is pretty cool. Get out your camera. Let's take a, let's take a video of this. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. That word, mahar, I'm going to turn it into hobbelard. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hobbelard. He did that which was least expected, wholly unorthodox and a complete surprise, and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Who in the right mind would ever run towards a 12 and a half foot tall giant? I mean, you don't do that. And yet, that was the secret. Chapter 3, introducing the strange and inexplicable desire to do something. This is something that's resonating within many of us in this room. We want to do something. We don't want to sit and just do church. We want to be the church. 
Last week, we talked about it with the terms of being stuck. And there's so many of you in here that do not want to be stuck. You want to be doing. But how do you do? Kipling's plastic police car. So this is the illustration I was using this week to try and enunciate something. And that is, imagine, you know, Kip's little, uh, it's maybe about a foot long, and it's like a little police car. And you turn it upside down. You know those things that you turn on? And we as parents get very good at turning those things over and turning them off. They're very irritating uh, devices. But there's actually three different options. You can have it off, which hopefully none of us in this room are off. Okay, we have good batteries. Everything has been given to us in Christ to be making some noise with this little device here that's been given us, known as our body. And so the first option is to turn it on, and it turns on the lights and sounds. And so, and you know, it makes some noises, some lights flash. This is where many of us are at. We're in option one, and we're burning battery. It takes real grace to make this noise. I mean, this is, this is a real thing that's taking place inside of us. However, look at our wheels. Set the thing down. It's not going anywhere. There's another option, kink, and it's a greater degree of power that is going to be drawn from that battery that actually causes this little device not to just make noise, but to move. And whatever that next degree is, is I think what we are hungering for. We know, many of us know intellectually that we can't do this thing. That we need a greater draw from what God has planted in us in the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to functionally do this work. I want you to deliberately choose and say, turn me on, God. I want to drain all that I can out of you. The battle plan for the lightning war. So, Here's at least an overall plan. I have seven different things. The next one's, the seventh one's on the last page. Humble. If you're going to approach this world, the hobbler has to be humble. It has to be lowly in its thinking. It cannot be cocky, loving. Everything it does is just marked by such a heavenly love. Aggressive. We don't stop. Oh, we're loving, but we're loving to the point of irritation sometimes. In other words, you can tell me no that you don't want Jesus, but I know you're going to hell. Therefore, I am going to pursue you. And we are willing to say things that are socially inappropriate. We are willing to pursue people, get into their personal space, if necessary, to see their souls rescued. I know, very uncomfortable. What I just said is completely off limits for most of us. However, what I'm saying is to be a hobbler and to really change this world, we have to be willing to be aggressive. Surprising. Mm -hmm. They won't expect it, will they? Organized. Why not? You see... We're not used to working together. We're used to having our own agendas. My family's going to do something, whether you guys do anything or not. But what if my family joined together with your family? We're like, you know what? We could do this together and be that much stronger. See, that's what I'm desiring. I don't just want my family to be doing something. I want our family to be doing something. However, that's easier said than done. But that's why I'm saying this message might be before it's time. Fun. Some of you are like, okay, now we're getting there. There's no reason why the work of the kingdom can't be extremely enjoyable. In fact, any of you that have ever aggressively gone out and just done the work of the king, one thing you'll say after you're done is, we need to do that again. It's fun. We're built for it. It's like it resonates with us. It's like, this is great. Yeah, I want to do that again. It's fun. Now, seven, with a predefined response to heckling, harassment, and hatred. Because what's going to happen? You'll get spittle on the nose. 
It'll drip down like this. It'll even get it, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, when it's dripping down like this, getting near your mouth, you know, to, you're thinking about wiping. However, just stay there with love. All right, I just want you to know I love you. Even if it's dripping, it's getting close to the edge of your mouth. I love you. You see, you already have a predefined response. If you don't have a predefined response, you know what happens? You start spitting. No, 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 that's, that's not the response. To be humble and to take abuse, even when it's heaped on you, and to give love and humility back. Oh, it's not always easy, but guess what? It's part of the fun. Because then you get back to, you know, home base. It's like, how'd it go? And you, get, you still have it on. I'm not washing it off, guys. I'm not washing it off. I'm going to cherish this. It's even caking on your face. I'm, I'm cherishing this. And all, everyone is loving it. You see, and then you can tell the story. Oh, they spit on my nose. They spit on your nose. Yeah. Oh, and all of us give high fives. You see, we know the fellowship of the sufferings is part of what binds us together. The world is hostile to Jesus. However, we know they break. They break through love. Constant, aggressive love breaks sinners. They don't know what to do with it. They can't understand it. It surprises and shocks their soul. Wielding the kid as a kingdom tool. So one of Daddy Ludi's strategies is to recognize that not everyone, especially when they find out that I'm a pastor, you can just see how people respond. It's like, uh-oh, we got issues. Watch that guy. However, with a kid, you can get away with all sorts of stuff. That's why they send kids up to houses to, like, sell things. You know, it's like, you go, you go up there and sell cookies. And guess who's a sucker for it every time? I've lost a lot of money over the years. <laughs> and so... You know, one of the things I've done with my kids is we'll go into environments and we'll already have pre-done uh, up sheets with all the little kids, their faces, their names, and their ages on it. And then I have each of the kids take pencils and they write a note to someone. So we pick someone and then we deliver. One of the kids delivers it. Guess what? They always receive it. And guess what? The, it's on these things. Tracks. That's, it's homemade tracks from my kids to them. I've had people even years later say, where are your kids? Oh, that's still, I still have them up on my refrigerator. In other words, it's a hobbler in a strange way. And so we have the ability to hit a culture in the way that will actually work. But you have to be creative sometimes. So I have some ideas, okay? These are just ideas. They're not, I'm not like formalizing anything because our, I want our church to do these things, not Eric to just come up with a brainstorm session. The Kiddo Express, door-to-door delivery of pure, unadulterated cuteness. Kids sing a song, share a story, act out a short drama, and then give a special gift. I mean, come on, we got some serious heart melting going on here. With the gospel ready to be given. I mean, who's not going to open their door for that? The Windsor Players, door-to-door delivery of wit, humor, and unmistakable talent. These are actors with an agenda to get their audience to laugh, have a wonderful time, and then muse about the eternal things of life. The Windsor Games, door-to-door delivery of a game show with prizes and all. This mobile trivia contest is sure to cause side-splitting laughter and get the guessing audience to ponder things about science, culture, and theology that they otherwise may never have. The Windsor Curiosity Club, door-to-door canvassers. These guys are wanting to get an earful from the community. They want to know where people are at and how others think Windsor can be made a stronger community. And if they also want to know, they also want to know where Windsor stands on the issue of Jesus Christ. The Windsor Singers, door-to-door singing is their main occupation. They take caroling and bring it to an all-new level. 
But this band of pure boldness also looks for the opportunity to pull off the ultimate flash mob as well. See, some of you are like, that's me. That's totally me. If it's daring, they want to do it. Some of you are like, that's not me. Maybe this is more me. (laughs) The, The Windsor idiots in the park. This is when the famed Windsor singers, Windsor players, Windsor gamers, and Kiddo Express unite in the park during the spring, summer, and fall for special events. The Windsor givers, door-to-door gatherers of valuables, think Robin Hood, but a version where the rich give to him willingly, taking from the wealthy of Windsor and sharing it with the poor of Windsor. These guys are garage sailors on steroids, making the ultimate finds by asking others to consider giving to the needs of others. The Windsor givers make giving hilarious, unforgettable, and an adventure and an amazing reminder of the greatest gift ever given, Jesus Christ. The Windsor service team, a troop always ready to help the people of Windsor. We have people that love to rake leaves... (laughs) Makes it sound like leaves was an action. Love to rake leaves, mow lawns, take out trash, scrub oil spots, and even walk dogs. If there is sincere need, we have a sincere desire to help meet that need in the name of Jesus Christ. The Windsor Special Classes. Whatever, things, whatever training is needed most, we are ready to offer help. We can do a class on saving your marriage, a family that works, handling finances, getting a job, doing interviews, or getting your health back. We love to tackle the practical and remind our listeners that the truest source of success in life is always found in Jesus Christ. So, conclusion to our book today. There is a war on. What are each of us willing to do? In times of war, oftentimes there'll be a draft. Sometimes there's a mandatory draft where if you're of a certain age, you're forced. In Christianity, there is no mandatory draft. And that seems to be what most of us would conceive of as a weakness. When in actuality, God wants us to choose to join based on love, our love for him. You see, you can just hope that someone else signs up, someone else lays down their life, someone else takes the bullet so that you can have your fat and happy Christianity in America. Or you could say, for such a time as this, I was born. For such a time as this, I've been introduced to the King of Kings. For such a time as this, I have a better grip on the gospel understanding than probably most people on earth today. For such a time as this, I've come to a full maturity, and I have something to give. I have time. I have energy. I have resources. I have talents and abilities. God, here it is. I don't know what it looks like, and technically the danger with a message like this, and this is the reason why... I say it was a little ahead of its time before, because some of you remember. You remember my enthusiasm. I even told Leslie that before I did it on that Sunday, Saturday night, I said, I have, my heart burns for this idea, to be united as a body, to actually do things together as opposed to splintered. I mean, I burned to do it. And yet I don't know how to actually make that happen. The reason I'm bringing it up, I cannot make my children grow up into mighty men and women of God, but I yearn at the deepest part of my being to see it happen. There's a part I play, yes, but the rest hinges on the Spirit's work in them. And that's the way I feel in this message. For many of us, we want to move forward. We want to do something. What that something is, I'm not trying to define today. I'm mainly trying to get us thinking. Because last time I tried to define it, and we weren't ready for it. We ended up getting nowhere. We ended up taking not even one step forward. And that can happen. You give too big of a vision too quick, it's like, here, 
eat this turkey. Be, ah, and you, what do you do? It's not even cooked. <laughs> That's about right. So what we need is grace. We need grace to hear this message. We need grace to respond to this message. If you're hungry for this, I want you to begin to communicate with your, uh, the pastor and elders in this church and just begin to communicate saying, I want to move things forward in this area. Not just personally, because right now we're dealing with two tensions. Personal movement forward and corporate movement forward. However, one of the things you'll see is that personal movement forward works really well when you're actually thinking outward. When you think about only you, you get stuck. When you think about a dying world, the glory of Jesus Christ, you start moving. We've got something bigger than us to think about. So one of the great secrets for getting unstuck is the power of grace, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, no doubt. But it's also your willingness to move forward and turn outward. So if you're game, let's build a Hoplomar. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.